0: A guy drove up to his house, got home early from work, about a mile from my house growing up. Walks in his house and there's a guy on the couch. And this is the guy he's been accusing his wife of cheating with, and there he is, he's there. Shoots him and kills him. Shoots at her, misses, gets in the car, comes toward, we live in this lake neighborhood, comes barreling towards our neighborhood crashes his car, gets out on foot. Well, my dad is a sergeant for the state patrol. And the sheriff deputy calls, you know, there's, they all know each other. And all these lights are flashing behind our house up at the lake. And they explain the situation. Well, we're, we're eating TV dinners on the TV trays, watching MASH. and He picks up the phone, answers it, goes into this other mode, hangs up the phone, wipes his food off of his mouth, and he just kind of starts going through this thing. We're like, Dad, what is it? What is it? What is it? He just gives us a brief synopsis of it. Grabs his gun and then grabs another gun and he lays it down on the bed. And it's a 38 special, five shot revolver. And I can still see it pushing down on the comforter. Just this heavy little pistol. He says, don't touch it, keep the door shut. If anybody but me comes back to this house, I want you to pick that gun up. Don't be afraid to use it. And walks out into the night. So I'm pacing the floor for 30 minutes while they go on this manhunt for a guy that's checking doors in our neighborhood. And there's only a few hundred houses in our neighborhood. After a while, there's this one gunshot and we're freaking out. There's one gunshot. But well, this guy swam out in, the, in our lake, in our childhood home lake and shot himself. And then dad just came home, packed his guns up and we just never talked about it. And the lake was never the same. And in terms of the power of story, I never know what to do with it. Like it sits in my head and every couple of months I'll think of that story my whole life. I mean, that's, that was almost 30 years ago. And I'll just sit and think that's a terrible story and I never know what to do with it. That was one of my first forays into sometimes people completely come to the end of their road and make all their worst decisions ever in a single evening. And that's it. That's the end. And I, I, for the rest of my childhood, never saw that lake the same. You know, I just walk up to the edge of the water and just bug-eyed. Like, what do you do with that? So that's a that's when stories don't have an end. They can still be powerful. I still, as a 40-something, I can I don't. I don't know what to do with that story. It's still in there. I can still see the gun. I can still. You know, I could probably tell you what the date was if I th- if I thought about it.
1: Still messes with my head. But it does confirm stories are powerful. They're very powerful.
0: Even if you don't know what to do with them, they stay with they stay with you.
1: Stories are indeed powerful. Unless this is the first time you've listened to our show, you've heard us say that before a lot. This past weekend, we wrapped up an incredible wonder workshop in Los Angeles with Brad Montague and special guest, Rain Wilson. Uh, One of the conversations I had with Brad was about that very idea. I often catch myself saying stories change the world, but do they? Yes, I believe. They are the very things that do in fact change the world, but I I also understand how often the phrase, you know, quote, change the world gets thrown around these days, possibly in part because the world feels like it needs so much changing, right? I do think we need to do the work of finding some fresh new verbiage and terminology to eliminate the risk of sounding cliche because I don't want any single person to fail to understand the power of their own story or the stories that they tell. So, let's talk about that. Why stories have a seemingly magical ability to change hearts and minds. I am Harris the 3rd and this is the Story Podcast. There are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination. The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may
0: not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway.
1: To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished.
0: The only hope we have are the stories we tell. <laughs> stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers.
1: I am so excited about this week's conversation with my friend, Steve Doherty. Steve is an incredible storyteller. This isn't his vocation, or is it? <laughs> Let's begin with how Steve describes his work when meeting someone new. Really sorry for what I'm about to say. That's kind of how I feel
0: because I, I work at a church. I would say it real sheepishly like that. I I work at a church. Are we still cool? Can we still sit here?
1: (laughs) If you recognize Steve's voice, it may be from a recent episode of the Story Podcast where we did a special Valentine's Day show with love stories submitted by our listeners. Or if you were in attendance at this past year's conference, Steve was also a featured storyteller on stage at Story 2016. You could hear a pin drop in the CMA Theater in Nashville as he shared an emotional story about he and his father. It was an incredible moment. When I first heard Steve tell a story, it was at a story slam. I had no idea he was a pastor. He didn't fit any of the stereotypes that pastors often have, and he was using language that most pastors frown upon. I was curious why he was to use his word sheepish when telling others that being a pastor was his job
0: oh it's uh it's it's uh probably based on uh the the presupposition of okay this guy works at a church and he's going to ask me to go to it before we get to our our, our destination or something you know so i just i'm really i feel for people who are stuck strapped in a seat with a guy that may or may not want them to be different than they currently are by the time we arrive wherever we're going. So I put my, I put my hands up. I, I immediately have this energy of, but it's not like that, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's what it is. It's, it's apologetic when it probably doesn't need to be. It's like a neurotic calling that goes with being a pastor. I'm a pastor, but it's not gonna cost you anything, you know. but I don't say all that, I just think that. Steve is on four medications. And <laughs> <laughs>
1: While we've certainly talked about spirituality before on the show i don't think we've had a guest who is currently employed as a pastor or a religious leader uh, i'm currently speaking at a conference in orlando with about 5,000 leaders in attendance it's about dreaming big steve happens to be here as well to simply walk on stage and tell a story you see there's no point at the end of his stories there's no and the moral of the story is and that's something i see far too often among public speakers especially pastors. I think there's plenty to discuss around that idea. Thus, this conversation with Steve. Let's actually talk about that. You, you said that's, if you were on an airplane, that's not how the conversation goes. Uh-huh. How does the conversation go?
0: Well, it, de- it depends. Like I can remember there was a time I was coming back from the West Coast to the East Coast, and it was a, a morning flight. And the guy, uh, real jovial, nice guy, Um, he was a manager at some car lot near where I lived. And uh, he kind of did all the talking. So it's like a 10 a.m. flight, and uh, we're gonna be on the plane for four or five hours, and we're an hour into the flight. And he keeps ordering those little bottles of vodka. And uh, so he's on like his third or fourth one, he's tucking them into the pocket of the seat and he keeps talking about what he's just done out in Vegas and LA on his vacation. And uh, it included women he wasn't married to. After establishing, he was going home to the old ball and chain, you know, and and so women and irresponsibility and all this stuff, you know, and I mean, we didn't high five, but it was just really, he was certain that these were... These were his tales of adventure that I would envy. And then he asks. So I, you know, and so when he asks, I know, well, this is going to go one of only a couple ways. And uh, he says, So, so, so what do you do, man? After making some comment about cocaine and naked women and jello shots, what do you do? I said, uh, I'm a pastor. And then I, that's that's all I offered because I just want to feel it. I just want to sit there and watch it. And, uh, which is, which is sick, it is, but because I'm not going to judge him, I just know he's going to judge him, which is way more fun for me, <laughs> and he's and I'm telling you it was it was just within a couple a couple sentences he was telling me, Ye, yeah, that's cool, man, yeah, every Christmas we do a big Christmas party to thank the Lord for the bounty for the previous year, and I'm like, you don't have to do that, I <laughs> like you can't you know you just told me those other stories they're not going to be undone with your Christmas story, but so so I kind of feel like uh, people aren't allowed to tell you the truth once they find out that you represent the truth they have to hide things from you because they could somehow uh, somehow lying to me is better for <laughs> for their standing with God and
1: so yeah. fascinating yeah. I obviously connected with you first via story the conference mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because you were a storyteller not because you were a pastor would you say in in many ways that the word storyteller could be interchangeable with the words teaching pastor. Yeah. Well,
0: uh, yes. The, the short answer is yes. The long answer, is yes. <laughs> it would be. Um, you know, pastor has the idea of taking care of people, and so so that it, that's a, it gets a little complicated using that word anyway.
1: I actually love where this is going because as soon as I hear you say that, the first thing it brings to mind is we'll do storytellers, not take care of people. And then that brings up a whole conversation of they probably should stories have the ability to help guide people in a certain direction.
0: Yeah. Um, I didn't mean it as mutually exclusive. I think what I meant was like, when you think of a pastor, it's that that's something that you can do without a microphone. Totally. And, and, but the, the storytelling element of what, Uh, in my opinion, and according to my preferences, what you're doing to engage a room full of people, whatever that room is, to wake up their heart or remind them of their commonality, to point them toward love and all that stuff. So I'm talking more in the traditional sense of what is a sermon, but when when you show up in someone's life but, yeah. I mean that's pastoring and that you don't have to be ordained to do that. You certainly don't need to have a sermon ready.
1: Totally. I know what you mean. I, I think even though I understood what you meant by that, my mind immediately went to kind of that idea that CJ shared his story two thousand sixteen about the difference between story selling and storytelling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think in many ways, as storytellers, we have the opportunity to play a role in caring for the story of humanity mm-hmm. and moving it forward in positive ways. But I, th- I guess the difference between storytelling, which is very magical, and story selling, which is kind of hijacking the formulas that make narrative powerful, mm-hmm. that is not caring for people in yeah. a, a very great. So, in many ways, storytellers, I guess, can play both a positive, and negative role depending on the types of stories they tell.
0: I think so, and you may not even consider yourself a storyteller, but if you're being honest and you're 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 talking about honestly um, how you're. Uh, you know, for your whole life or a section of your life, your beginning, middle, and end—when how your protagonist, yourself, oftentimes is has changed, transformed, learned something, made a di- difficult decision—that's had an outcome. I, you know, like because we're all storytellers, and I tell, a, I do a lot of storytelling outside the confines. Uh, that's a funny word to use, confines. I didn't mean it that way, but I guess I did. There's one for Freud, Out, outside the barbed wire of the... No, I really don't feel that way. We were
1: just talking about the film, The Village, earlier today. <laughs> that's Maybe right, that was- yes. Uh,
0: and, but you know, outside a traditional definition of what church is, uh, like I can, I can remember sitting behind two women While we listened to somebody share a story, kind of an open mic night story thing that was happening up in um, up in Chapel Hill, and it was hard. It was funny, but it was hard. The story we just heard, somebody just got up there, you know, as a catharsis or whatever it was. They weren't doing ministry to anybody but themselves, you know, in in terms of what their agenda was. They were just like, "Here it is, five minutes. Here it is." And the two women turned and looked at each other. One of them was really misty-eyed, and I, I heard her say it. Um, this is incredible i've never experienced anything like this because we're all connected we're all strangers, but because somebody went first, somebody said this is my mess and i'm 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 trying to put it in narrative form, everybody in the room feels a little closer and and you know not to Christianize it, but i'm like well this that was a testimonial. The church has been doing that for a long time it's so that is a way of caretaking to say let's all uh let's all be as honest as we can be and then the listener says and i won't punish you for that honesty it's kind of the the adam and eve story it's not just physical nudity i don't think it's nakedness it's there's nothing between you and i the first consequences of sin and the in the book of Genesis aren't moral. They don't eat the apple and start burning things down. They eat the apple and start putting clothes on. You know, they start trying to control what the other one perceives. So the first consequences of sin aren't moral; they're psychological. And you care for somebody when you say, "I'll be honest, you be you be honest, and we won't we won't uh, damn one another for what we discover." that, that is a form of love.
1: Yeah. So so you say that, you know, we've been doing that in churches for hundreds of years, I think, maybe thousands of years. Do you think the problem then is that, is, there, is it just because there's a lack of awareness of the fact that churches have been doing that? Or would you say that not all of them have been doing it well? is there a lack of vulnerability I, I guess in storytelling within the church yeah i think that's
0: i think that's a good question maybe the answer is in the question i haven't been alive for very long and i haven't been to very many churches in the in the grand scheme but i would say the perception at least is one of the last places on a list to go and say here's what's true unfiltered would be a religious community um now I'm sure there are listeners who hear that and say, "Wait a minute and and I get that and because I could point to it too. But I'm talking in terms of like the broader perception, I don't think people think you know, it's time to get honest and go and not be judged for what I really am. They drive straight to their idea of what a church is. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't want that. Um, so I don't know, I won't idealize. Remember the time in church history where, you know, telling, the truth, what you really think, what you really did and, and all that stuff, it didn't count against you. I don't mean to say that, but the idea of being a truth people, being a being a people who say love and grace, like I think the way that I've often uh, referred to it and, th- and the way that I think of it is a changing room. Um, when in John's gospel, Jesus comes in grace and truth, that's the order of the words he chooses. And so it's not just grace and not just truth, but it's not truth and grace. It's grace and truth. And so when you think about grace as that's the changing room, because truth literally in Greek means uncover. It's unhidden. You know, if you pull somebody's clothes off and in, in public, you mean them harm. You give them a space to do it you can do it right in the middle of a store and that's I mean, it's not even illegal. <laughs> you can, you can, you can drop trial and try on something better because you're encased. And so I think of grace as that enclosing, like that we can offer each other that, that we're in this together. Let's tell each other's stories. Let's listen to each other's perspectives on this crazy thing. And, uh, and, and then let's see what we find with our commonality and stuff we got to work on and face and, and all that stuff. But it's grace first. You know, it's, it's,
1: it's, uh, it's as safe as it can be. Why are you participating in the telling of stories outside of the, to use your words, the confines of your church? Why did you make a decision to do that? Um, like some sort of personal goal, hobby, you wanna check it off a list? Is yeah, there some okay. deeper meaning behind? Uh, I, I wanted to try out some cuss words. And it was no, I'm kidding. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. It uh, It's. Are you I, known as like the cussing pastor around town? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I,
0: you'd have to ask other people. I don't think so. I. Um, I that's a, that's a great question. I, it's so simple. I'm having trouble answering it, but I, I think it's. Um, I like watching people respond to things they'd already made up their mind about. You know, And Dallas Willard talked about familiarity breeding unfamiliarity, which is what breeds contempt. You know, I, Oh, I know that thing, which means you don't. Um, I like the idea of, I told a story at a bar a couple months ago, and when I was done, somebody came up to me and went, is that like that prodigal son story? And I mean, I didn't use any of that language, but it was a story about just going back, starting again, the, the humility and the, the courage of embracing a reset and all that was that the prodigal son story? And I was like, oh, that's a cool thought. Tell me about that. And I had a great conversation at a bar uh, about that. So, and it's not that I have this agenda where I'm trying to sneak up on people, but it's, um, you get to talk about what's true, what resonates deeply within us. And, but because it's done in a story form, defenses never go up. I just really enjoy that. I, I really enjoy watching lights go on and you didn't warn everybody
1: with a church service, and
0: hey, I'm getting ready to try to change your mind about something, you know. So I just, I just really
1: enjoy that. Yeah. So we're at a conference right now together. Yes. That's what gave us the opportunity to sit down and have this conversation uh, for the story podcast? And at the conference, we're both at. Um, you, you were not necessarily playing the role of teacher, would you say on stage? You were simply walking on stage and telling a story. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? You tell me. <laughs> you tell me, man. Uh, I think I'm trying I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything, mm-hmm. but I, I would say you I think where I want to go with this conversation and what you and I both believe is that stories are powerful. Mm-hmm. Um they can teach us valuable lessons. But I think what I want to have a conversation about is does that mean that at the end of telling our story, which is really all you're simply doing, is you're walking on stage into a spotlight. Mm-hmm. And in five or six minutes or ten minutes, whatever you're just simply telling a story, mm-hmm. and you're very good at it. Thank you. And people are going to learn things from hearing you tell that story. Mm-hmm. But you are not stopping at the end of your story and saying, "And the moral of the story is mm-hmm. why? Why are you not? Why are you not doing that?"
0: Well, because, well, so there's a few reasons, but the the main one in my mind is always. Um, it gives some. It gives people something to resist. If you tell them, "Here's the point. Here's the takeaway. Here's the call to action," Here, like, you know, it's like I've been driving poetically, artistically down this lane. Now I'm going to switch lanes all of a sudden and use a different part of our brains. It gives you something to resist. You know, I, like after tonight, this uh, I, I talked about a sales thing tonight and. There was no call. To, I knew you were there. I don't. Mm-hmm. There was no call to action. It was right. just I'm trying to artistically talk about this thing that happens in our head. And this woman came up to me and said, "I just totally, I'm I, like I'm. I can't remember exactly how she said it, but now I'm wondering, is God trying to say something to me about this?" And I was like, "Oh, that's a great question. You know, I don't know the answer to that." But but that was her takeaway, like because it it was specifically her world and it it gave her nothing to resist or defend just because it's a narrative. Like, <clears throat> I, th- I think about, um, I think about how often in the spiritual tradition that stories and parables, riddles are ways of making you, are not, that's, even, that's totally the wrong way to put that, inviting you, to experience a thing where otherwise maybe a, a set of rules or a thing to sign on a line on uh, would have given you something to resist, you know, like like David, King David in the Hebrew scriptures, decides to sleep with this woman. He's being creepy about like watching her take a bath. Has her brought over. Sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, realizes you know, this is gonna be in the tabloids. Long story short, has her husband, which serves in his military, killed in battle. You know, So this is big cover up. It's, so it's just, it's terrible on, on so many levels. Well, this guy's nickname is a man after God's own heart. And he's arguably broken you know, four of the big 10. So what are you gonna tell him? You know, well, here's the commandments you broke. He knows the rules ostensibly a guy with that nickname would, would know that. And so this prophet, Nathan comes in and goes, let me tell you a story and tells a story of sheep. There's a poor guy that has a pet and there's a rich guy who has so many sheep that he just numbers them. He doesn't even know their name, but a guest comes into town. What does he do? He doesn't slaughter one of his own sheep to feed the guest. He takes the poor guy's family's only sheep. And at the end of it, David is fuming. Like I want this guy's head. And Nathan goes, it's you. And Instead of saying here's here's a bunch of rules that you already know on some level and could resist, I'm going to tell you a story, get you emotionally involved. Defenses never go up. What is David going to do at the end? Oh, I well, yeah, but the Hebrew for sheep means this, and 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 then the Aramaic, and you know, it doesn't work that way. The narrative is all the way in, and it's a huge transforming thing um, at that point in the story. So, uh, I'm more interested at this point in. Uh, us having a chance to tell stories and recognize that we're, every single one of us is a storyteller. That's how our brains work. We all have narratives that we choose. We cobble together a whole bunch of information. Um, let me say that a different way. We don't have most of the information we need to, it seems like, to get through a day. So we fill in the gaps with narratives. We, so that's the cobbling. That's the, we make stories out of um, broken narratives. And uh, I think we're invited by the storyteller that has that has capital letters in it to choose a different way of telling the stories, to choosing a different way of of sewing narratives together lovingly and hopefully and with kindness and all that stuff. But it's not. It's way bigger than. Well, here's the don'ts. Like everybody knows the don'ts, or in the do's, but it's a majority of don'ts. Every, everybody knows that. But stories. Those are. That's what moves us. You, you remember the prodigal son 10 years later but you can't remember you know the text in a contract that you signed that's that's not sexy at all and that's really my point is this is i do sexy sexy work Harris.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that
0: word came out right there that's you that's what uh, just you
1: did say the word panties and your story that you told today—that seems to be one of the takeaways. There was I like just... a small sexy moment there, where it's just like, "Where's where's he going with this?" <laughs> oh, just the but way that you, really happened. Was, I can have you to... can you tell us the way that you enunciated that word on stage today?
0: Oh, apparently I did. Because
1: yeah. if I were to say it, it'd be like, "Yeah, there was the panties went flying. or panties went off. i just you enunciated in a very uh, well. It's the it was the saxophone player for Foreigner,
0: and while he was playing his solo in fingerless leather gloves a pair of panties <laughs> hit him right in the head. That's true. I don't know why I have to enunciate that that's word. that's a true story. It's a true story, but that's not necessarily the
1: only way to pronounce that word. <laughs> <laughs> now everyone's listening uh, to this right now. I know they're probably going, man, I, if they were at story, they heard you tell a story. Um, and so they have respect for you, for those uh, who heard our Valentine's Day episode, they heard you tell another story. Uh, and now they probably want to hear this saxophone fingerless glove playing hit in the head with a pair of panties story. Panties. Uh, panties, sorry. it's a strong T in there. Yeah. Uh, you're, you are you're doing something interesting at this conference. You, you're taking a story and breaking it up into three chapters, I mm-hmm. guess you would call them. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to just an industry of storytellers. What were your thoughts on your creative process of taking one story and breaking it up into three parts. Why and why those separate parts and why is it broken up in those spots?
0: Well, I can't take a lot of credit for that. Uh, our, our good friend, Don, who makes um, um, most of those programming decisions thought it would be a good idea to have um, something that wasn't necessarily uh, the art of music uh, uh, that that's playing a, a great role at the conference. And then on the other side, if there's sides, a teacher, somebody presenting a teaching of some kind, uh, walking people through that. Um, so somewhere in the middle, this idea of an artful way of telling stories. It's, so you know, I'm not teaching, i uh, maybe I'm presenting, but you, you know, it's that hybrid space in the middle. So breaking it up, uh, where each one um, hopefully has a little bit of a life of its own. But if you don't see all three, you're missing something. And so it's. Um, they are pieces of a grander narrative um, that's really important to me as I just, cause I have a, I had a sales background. I never really thought of, of myself as a salesperson, although I was freakishly good at it. Um,
1: and we can talk about that if you want to. Because I've got a story about selling cars and I've, how you and your wife met. That's right. Yeah.
0: And I need to, as a tangent, I need to say, that doing that podcast made me look like the, just a total romantic stud because I was just like, oh, I can tell the story, I could do that. But the way it lined up, and I got to tell my wife that I did it. I mean, she she just absolutely loved it. Oh, it's so sweet. And I was like, wasn't it? You know. But that's not really where where it came from. So thanks for making me look like a way better husband. You're welcome. Than I am, that's yeah. why
1: that's why the story podcast exists. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so sh- the uh, so breaking it up into those three pieces was largely a decision uh, that I was invited into. What if we took a, a story or several stories and kind of sure. wove them together? So already knowing that I have this way of telling this one particular piece of my life because of, of the parallels that I see in, and a lot of people smarter than I have already seen it in the sales world and the church world sometimes. Um, uh, it was a way of, uh, of piecing it together that way. But I'd say one thing is recognizing um, that it's already existed in some form as something written down. Um, but knowing that it would re- be presented as a story is kind of retooling it to go from um, this is a lofty term, but uh, going from literature to something that you helps people feel in the room, just you know, just to be in the room and to say it. Uh, as uh, as a narrator of your, of your own story so that takes a little bit of of uh, recalibrating all it's it's all the same ideas but you just know well you could read that this is the problem George Lucas has I think <laughs> at least that's what uh, that's what he's he's said to have as a, as a problem he's a he's somebody that can write really great lines but you can't actually act to them you can't say them they don't sound real you're in my very soul tormenting me Um <laughs> It's a deep cut from the, from the, the prequels. <laughs> uh, but it's the uh, just, yeah. So that would be one thing of just recognizing. I want people to be able to feel uh, that I'm walking them through a story rather than reciting something, which is super, super important to, to be in the room. People can tell if they're paying attention, if you're
1: remembering words you wrote down days prior. Um, so I don't know that it's acting. So, how do you do that? Is that something? Is like a voice inside your head that you remind yourself, like, "Okay, hey, don't sound scripted. Speak this way." I have key lines that I that are important
0: to me um, for a few reasons. They either do they're either important to link cars together uh, on the on the train is the metaphor I'm appealing to, uh, or they're funny uh, at, at the right point you know, let some air out of the room, kind of a, kind of a point. So I'll have key lines, but the one thing that I try to find a balance, and I, it depends on my mood um, oftentimes, but don't over-rehearse. Um, if your story is true, gosh, this is a, that's that Mark Twain quote. If you tell the truth, you never have to <laughs> remember what you said. Uh, it's uh, don't over-rehearse your own stories. Um, I know the key plot points. I trust myself to be able to move people through the narrative. And then I've got a, a couple of stepping stones that are fixed, this sentence, and then I know that'll get me to this paragraph and then you know another, another sentence. So it's it, it, you know in a, in a seven or eight minute story, I probably have five lines that are I want to
1: say I'm in a specific way because they get me down the road. Interesting. So you don't write them out word for word and then script it, memorize it perfect it?
0: I'll write it out. Um, you know, like th- like these already existed in a written out form way longer. So I trimmed them down. It's kind of started over, took key ideas from the paragraphs. So sometimes I'll write it out just because uh, I forget who said it, but sometimes uh, I don't know what I think until I write it. So I don't know what my strongest point is going to be until I write it out. So I'll spend some time doing that. Um, but like I, you know, I told a story a couple, couple months ago at a, at a contest and I wanted to see what my brain would do. And so I knew what my first line was going to be. I had one sentence in the middle that I knew was, was a hinge. Uh, what we what we say in the business? I, it was, I don't know that that's true. I just made that up. But it seems like if they are two halves, it was a hinge. And then I knew what my what the button was. What, yeah. How I was I was going to walk out. And I didn't write anything down. And it felt really it felt great because I was a little shaky beforehand. But it felt really great because it was just. That's about as vulnerable and as honest as you can get is I know what my story is. I just don't know exactly how I'm going to say it to you until lights and eyeballs are pointed at me. Uh, so sometimes I'll write it out and then sometimes I'll just trust myself.
1: Yeah. Um, are all the stories that you tell like from your own life, they're all personal experiences? You can tell when they're not because I get um,
0: pseudo- Poetic about like I've got this story I've told so many times about a dumpster. And it's like I have a dumpster recurring theme throughout my entire childhood, these different dumpsters. And so it's true, but I personify the dumpster and I, I look you in the eye right now and tell you that this dumpster, these dumpsters didn't really have a soul, but in the in the in the poem short story, it's obviously fictional. So yes, but it's, I try to tell, well, so all memory is historical fiction. I'm not, a, a, you know everything we remember is, it's got, it's got that sauce. Of course. We, you're, you're remembering your last memory of a memory. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, yeah, they're, they're generally true stories. I, I don't typically tell other people's stories unless they're in service to my own. Can we talk about my narcissism? Is this a good time for,
1: no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey Steve, tell me about your narcissism. I'd love to. I feel like I've been doing that. <laughs> You're working on a book though, right? I am. Yeah, so yeah, I think a lot of. Do you think all I was about to say, a lot of good storytellers are also good writers. Good. Do you think that's true?
0: Well, just working on a book. Let's be honest. B-
1: yeah. Books are like pants, everybody has a pair. I'm uh, <laughs> uh
0: yeah, I uh, some of the stuff I'm talking about at this conference, I'm hoping to use as a uh, kind of an anchoring story of like in in sales world, which is is so vague, it almost means nothing. But in my particular experience, I've sold cars and I've sold vacuum cleaners and I've sold radio and I've, you know, uh, it's it's uh it's uncanny the parallels to to faith sometimes. You know, um, hi, keeping your head in the game and just just how the whole thing works. And I don't I don't mean that cynically, but yeah, it is something to watch out for because I I can definitely be a guy that just turns. Uh, this whole faith thing into another way to win, you know, market dominance and competitiveness. And yeah, they can, so it's, it's something I've had to watch over the years. So I'm writing a bit about that. And then, um, and I've got some, some meditations coming up hopefully pretty soon. And I'm sure many pages filled with stories. It's all stories. Yeah. It's, it's all stories, but, but, uh, that, that would be a break from, uh, the question you asked me a second ago there, they they didn't necessarily happen to me. A lot of them did, but they're, you know, trying to tell, uh, stories from the, from the new Testament and then mixing them with stories that have, that have happened to me. Um, yeah, it's, I, I hope that it's that, uh, Hey, I thought I knew that. And now I'm just being invited to see it a different way. I'm not some deep theologian that is trying to you know, rewrite anything. It's just that idea of, Oh, I thought I, I thought I knew that well enough to have formed an opinion. And now that this idea or this way of telling it breaks it back open and I can sit in it for the first time again. Isn't, wasn't that a serial slogan tasted again for the first time? Have you driven a Ford lately? Do you do product placement on
1: this podcast? I'm just trying to help, man. Have you driven a Ford lately? That sounds familiar. I don't know about the cereal thing. No, okay. It must have been in the 70s when you were a kid. Yeah, well, thanks for that. (laughs) Thanks for that, young man. When you turn this podcast off, I'm going to give you what for. I love talking to Steve. One of the things I love about doing this podcast in general is the wide variety of storytellers we get to learn from every week. There's so much diversity. They work in so many different mediums and have so many different perspectives on the power that stories have. But something I've been considering lately is the fact that we so rarely take time during the show to just listen to a story told well. So I thought this was the perfect opportunity. I asked Steve if we could finish this episode by doing just that. I kind of put him on the spot but he was up to the challenge. I can remember
0: it was a December, I was 15, and Dustin was 16, so he was the driver. And we went, quote unquote, Christmas shopping. And I didn't have a lot of money with me, and so I'm not sure what my intentions were, but it probably had something to do with uh, women at the, Young, young ladies at the, at the mall in December. And we're coming to the end of our shopping trip and I looked up at the ceiling and there was one of those little dome mirrors that are supposed to have security cameras in them. And I looked at it and I thought, what are the chances that the camera is pointed at me and while it's pointed at me, there's a security guard looking at the monitor right now. And I decided to gamble and I took a, a leather wallet and slid it up the sleeve of my jacket. And I said, Dustin, let's go. And uh, we got out in the parking lot and two guys ran out and grabbed me uh, forcibly. And Dustin, they told him, get in your car. And they took me and they got me all the way back up to the door and they said, just, just give us the wallet. We saw you take it and we'll let you go. And uh, so I pulled the wallet back out of my, the, the, my wrist, the sleeve of my jacket, handed it to him and he said, okay, come on. And he goes ahead and, and, and drags me into the store. And I remember being offended. I thought that was immoral that he lied to me. I'm the thief, and, 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 but he was wrong. And then Dustin drives away, which was like a second sin. Like I'm the thief, but you don't ditch the thief. That's, that's also way worse. So they sit me down and they tell me because I'm a minor, I have to call my parents and my parents are divorced. And so I call my mom because I'm not an idiot. And they put me in a cell And my mother was just heartbroken on the phone. And I'm sitting in a cell and I can still hear her voice and it just broke my heart that I broke her heart. But I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally the door clinks and it swings open and there's my father and he's purple. Uh, He's so angry because he's a cop. Uh, And mom and dad are divorced, which means mom hung up the phone with me, called her ex-husband, went and picked him up and drove all the way 45 minutes over a town over to come pick up their delinquent son. And we got in the car after they said, he looks like a fine young boy. We're going to let him off this time. It's, uh, it's part of how white privilege works when you're a teenager uh, that I got uh, uh, another second chance and I get in the car and she picked him up in her new husband's pickup truck. So my dad is driving his ex-wife's husband's stick shift truck with his ex-wife in the passenger seat and me with the stick shift between my knees, driving home and it's silent and it's silent and it's silent until it's not. My dad finally erupts and says, how could you do this? How could you do this to us after all we've taught you? You're better than this. How could you have done this? screaming at me and I did not plan to do this, but it just came to my head and I said, I am so sick of not having money because of you guys' divorce. And I felt like I had to. And it destroyed them. It absolutely destroyed them. And that was probably the moment I realized that I could out-shame people to get myself off of a hook. And I I first learned it. It felt gross, but it also felt like, well, this is a way out. That's That's when I learned that I could shame people into... Uh, taking their focus off of my stupidity, my, my selfishness, and make them focus on themselves.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this short and informal conversation with Steve Dougherty. You can follow him on Twitter, which he says is his absolute favorite social network at stepdoc. It's a little tricky, the O is a zero. So that's at S-T-E-P-D-0-C. My hope is that we're all reminded that it doesn't matter what our vocation is, we are all storytellers. If you are listening to this, you have a story your story matters. Thank you so much for listening.
0: This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.